This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 211. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide into realms of the fantastic. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today it's my pleasure to bring you three short pieces of fiction. Back in 2018, I hit a nasty stretch of writer's block after the completion of The Lost and the Least. Finishing a major project always comes with a sort of emotional drop-off for me, and when I could work on anything I want, it can be difficult to summon the effort to work on anything. I'd been working on The Lost and the Least off and on since 2013, and after completing such a massive project, the drop was especially bad. I went back to a few different works in progress during the first few months of 2018, but none of them could sustain my interest. To get my storytelling groove back, I felt like I needed to finish something, even if it was something very small. It was at this point that Dave Robison came to my rescue. Dave had been one of the hosts of the Dead Robot Society podcast, and he was running a daily writing prompt group on Facebook. Each day, Dave shared an image from a broad and diverse collection of artwork, much of it with a sci-fi or fantasy feel to it. So for a few weeks, I checked out the images Dave posted every day, and if a given image sparked an idea, I would write a story about it. My goal was to tell a complete story, not just a vignette, and to do it in less than a thousand words. I completed three of those stories, and those are what I'm going to share with you here. The stories have no connection to one another, other than the method of their creation, but since they're all quite short, I'm releasing them all in one go. I hope you enjoy them. Accelerated Study Jabril cast a furtive look behind him as he crept up to the door of the library. His hand was sweaty and shaking as he drew the stolen key from his robe. The slim length of enchanted metal slid silently into the lock. As he turned it, Jabril spoke the words of opening. He felt power flow out of him, adding to the nervous trembling in his limbs. The wards parted, the lock turned smoothly, and the door opened with a soft click. Jabril shot a last glance over his shoulder, before he finally slipped inside. The bookshelves loomed before him, dark and forbidding. No moonlight fell through the skylights overhead. A single witch lamp provided the only radiance, the glass sphere glowing a soft yellow in its cradle by the door. Jabril touched the lamp, whispered its command word, and the orb rose obediently into the air. It followed, a handspan above and behind him, as he entered the stacks. Jabril had never been here unescorted, but he was sure of his destination. The book had called to him from the moment his hand had brushed it. He could hear its whispers even now. 
he followed that call deep into the library, until he stood before a case full of cracked and musty tomes, their titles obscured by a thick layer of dust. The object of his desire sat on a shelf just below eye level. A single streak of rich red leather stood out where his fingers had touched it, gleaming like new amidst its ancient neighbors. His hand closed around the book, and he felt a rush of warmth and reassurance, like returning to a lover's embrace. He drew it from the shelf, his pulse quickening, and carried it to the nearest table. While the witch lamp hung overhead, he opened the cover and took his first, eager look at his prize. He had known what to expect. The whispers had told him. Still, he stared in awe at the uneven script that filled the pages, not the careful, precise letters of a professional scribe, but the ragged, often hasty hand of a master wizard, one whose mind moved too swiftly for the pen to keep pace. Here were the unguarded thoughts of the Academy's founder. Every hidden discovery, every brilliant flash of insight, all waiting for Jabril to make them his own. Scarcely thinking, he placed a hand lovingly upon the page, imagining the hand of the founder in its place, seven centuries past. He felt a surge of power, saw his arm go rigid, and then the words began to move. Before his terrified gaze, the lines of text crawled off the page like a host of ants, mounting his hand and climbing up his arms. The words burned as they swarmed over his body, emptying one page after another. They sank into his veins, flowed into his heart, filled his mind with whispers that rang like battle cries. He fell to the floor, screaming, and still the book latched tightly to his hand. The world went black. He awoke in the headmaster's chambers. His head swam with memories that were not his own, soaring triumphs and bitter defeats, joy and anger and heart-rending loss. He was still Jabril, but in a real sense, he was now someone else as well. He had taken the Founder's words, and now she lived on inside him. The headmaster sat beside him, his dark eyes thoughtful. You were warned, he said. Jabril lowered his head. On his bare arms he could still see the Founder's words, etched in red where they had burned their way inside him. I... I had to know, he whispered. I didn't realize. He gestured at the marks. It still hurts. True knowledge always comes with pain, the headmaster said. That is its price. The ache will fade with time, but you will always bear the scars. Jabril's cheeks flushed hot with shame. I should have listened. It's too much. I wasn't ready. The headmaster raised an eyebrow. If you could choose again, would you choose differently? Would you rather you did not know what you know now? Jabril was quiet a long moment. When he spoke, he spoke honestly. No. A pause, then. Will I be sent away? The headmaster's eyes widened. Certainly not. You have the founder's words. I will not send them walking. He put a hand on Jabril's shoulder, gripped it. You must now absorb them, 
understand them, make them your own, and when you are ready, you must write them again. Jabril looked up in surprise. Silently, the headmaster drew back the cuff of his sleeve, and there, faded white against the age-spotted flesh, Jabril saw the scars of a ragged, hasty hand. Eyes of Water To the devils, she was Tishana Eyes of Water, but the mortals called her only the Hell Knight. She came to the realm of men to collect a debt. The lords sent out their champions to oppose her. They were slain. Priests drew signs of warding to bar her passage. She eluded them. In time, entire armies were raised against her. She walked across the bodies of the fallen and continued on her way. But when she came among the common people, she left her sword in its sheath and removed her helm. The mortals stared in wonder at her hard, elegant beauty, at her gleaming horns and bright azure eyes. Those eyes seemed to pierce beyond flesh and blood, to the depths of the soul, and whether they were turned on man or woman, elder or child, no one dared speak falsely in her presence. In every town, every village, every hamlet, her demand was the same. I seek the smith called Robert, whose shop is by the hawthorn tree. No such man lives here, they would say, and when she had seen for herself that it was so, she would leave that place and move on to the next. A few brave souls inquired, Why do you seek this Robert? He owes me a debt, was all she ever answered. Then she would place her great black helm upon her head once more, and continue on her way. In time her words must have reached the ears of the lords, for one day, instead of armies or clerics or champions, they sent a messenger. The man you seek has been found, he said. If you give your word that you will harm no one else, I will tell you where he is. Tishana answered him, I swear upon my mother's blood. I will settle accounts with Robert and no one else. Where is he? In the village of River Glen, three days' journey west of here, the messenger said. Go in peace now, and none shall bar your passing. None has barred my passing yet, Tishana said. But she went in peace nonetheless. Three days hence she came to the village, its straw-thatched huts nestled beside a small and burbling river. No one challenged her as she entered, but she saw fearful eyes watching from behind every curtain. She sheathed her sword and removed her helm. She came to the smithy beside the old hawthorn tree, its branches huge and gnarled with age. The door to the smithy was open, but there was no fire in the great forge within. The building that awaited her was dark and cold. Inside she found a man seated beside a window, his thick beard shot through with gray, his hands as gnarled as the old tree. He clutched something in one fist, too small to be a weapon, and thus unimportant. He did not move as she approached, but a faint smile graced his lips. Tashana did not understand it. So, you've come at last, Robert said. He did not sound frightened or surprised. If anything, he seemed amused. 
and something else, something she could not name. Anger burned at his insolence. Tashana pushed it down. I have come to collect what is due me, she said. The smith still did not look at her. He raised an eyebrow. And what is that, my dear? An answer, she said, the words coming out sharp and venomous, to a question that has plagued me my whole life, a question my mother says you can answer. Robert's voice turned bitter. I haven't seen your mother in thirty years. What makes you think I know anything that would interest you? Because there is no one else! Tashana's voice rose in pitch and volume, driven by anger and frustration and sheer desperation. She strode forward and slammed her fists on the table before him. I have walked across two worlds to find you. By all the fires of hell, I will have an answer! The smith made no reaction to her outburst, save to look down at his hands upon the table. He answered softly, All right, dear. What's your question? Look at me, Tishana hissed. The man looked up and finally met those shining azure eyes, eyes that streamed with water, spilling down Tishana's cheeks, falling pat, pat, pat upon the table. He looked at her, and in the light of the window, Tishana saw that his eyes were the same brilliant blue as her own. What's your question, Tishana? Robert asked again, his voice now thick and rough. Hand shaking, Tishana stabbed a finger at her own streaming eyes. Her throat had nearly closed, her breathing so ragged she could barely speak, but out she forced the words. What is wrong with my eyes? At this, the man made a sound that was nearly a laugh but then water began to flow from his eyes as well. Nothing, my dear, he said at last. Nothing at all. He opened his fist and offered her a silver locket, nearly the width of his palm. Confused, she opened it. Inside, she found a tiny painting, so fine and detailed that it could only have been drawn from life. There was Robert the smith, with his eyes of blue. There, her mother. Fierce and beautiful, with her eyes of red. And there between them, a child, with her mother's hide and horns, but not her eyes. Tishana looked at the man in astonishment. What is this? she whispered. Gently, Robert reached out and touched her face, brushing the water from her cheek. This is love, he said softly. Have a seat and I'll tell you all about it. Greet the Dawn I arrived at the colony more than two Earth years ago, but on this planet that's less than three-quarters of an orbit. In that time I've heard a lot of stories about the Dawn Gate, Though it took me and my computer more than five months to decipher enough of the language to know what they were talking about. The people of Irrawaddy are still human, but they were cut off from galactic civilization for over 400 years. A language can drift a lot in that amount of time, especially when they've lost all their computers and the books and vids they contained. 
When that stellar flare fried their colony ship shortly after landing, it may as well have thrown them a thousand years into the past. It's sort of a miracle that they survived at all, but that's also what makes them interesting to anthropologists like me. A true lost civilization? When was the last time we had one of those to study? How have they evolved as a culture? What knowledge did they preserve in their oral traditions, their art, their music? It was an unprecedented opportunity. It was also a good time to leave home. The new administration in North America cared a lot more about flags and marches and national unity than science or history or the fate of the outer colonies. My relatives weren't too keen on my heading off to a planet more than ten jumps away. But for me, it was a welcome bit of distance from the insanity of the political climate. Besides, if I didn't go now, I might not get another chance. Irrawaddy has its own sort of craziness, but mostly that's a function of their environment. The colony ship sat down near the ruins of an alien civilization. Nobody's sure how old, but they probably died out long before humans had spaceflight. All the tech that might have helped the colonists make sense of things got fried by the flare, so they're surrounded by structures and artifacts they can't understand. And incredibly, some of the stuff still works. They've got these weird little von Neumann nanomachines that keep them in good nick. Though what it's for is usually an open question. Even my computer can't make sense of most of it, and it's a lot better than anything the colony ship had when it got here. My point is this. If you take a bunch of humans and knock them back to the early industrial age, cut them off from history and science and modern medicine, and then surround them with a bunch of weird alien tech doing things they can't understand for reasons they can't imagine, you can't be surprised when they turn a little nutty and superstitious. So I hope you'll forgive me if I was skeptical of the stories I'd heard about the Dawn Gate. A few of the local kids took me out to see it in the third week after I landed. It doesn't look like much, just an open arch in the middle of the seawall, which surrounds the little bay east of the city. The wall has a naturalistic look about it, but I think it's artificial. It has the same look as some of the other alien structures around here, and that arch is a little too symmetrical for Mother Nature. It's about 20 meters wide and 50 high, big enough to move a good-sized fishing vessel through. The Arawadians have a bunch of those, with honest-to-goddess sails. They took me out sailing after a couple months here, and it was so gorgeous and peaceful on the water... I could have died happy right then and there. And most of the time, that's all they use it for. But the stories say the Dawn Gate is more than that. If you're there at just the right time, on the morning of just the right day, the gate opens a doorway to the other world. I've been here a good while now, but I'm still not sure I understand the other world. It's an important part of Irrawaddy's mythology, but I can't decide if it's more like heaven or fairy, or Narnia. They say their relatives are waiting for them on the other side, but they also say you can sail through the Dawn Gate and go to the other world while you're still alive. Sometimes, they say, people even come back, years or decades later. But the Irrawaddians say a lot of things, and it's hard to know how much to take literally. I mean, the old Earth religions talked about people ascending into heaven and coming back again, but even the people who believed in Jesus or Mohammed didn't know anybody who had done it personally. And if you claimed that you had, they probably would have looked at you funny. 
so it might be something like that. Whether it's mythology or superstition or religion, though, everyone in Irrawaddy agrees that the Dawn Gate will open tomorrow morning. One way or another, I'm going to be there when it happens. I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen, of course. Even on Earth, ancient civilizations had a habit of lining up their monuments and temples to mark certain times and seasons, and they could be really, really precise about it. I've been watching the sun rise each morning for the last two months, tracking its movement across the horizon. If my guess is right, tomorrow morning it will come up perfectly framed in the middle of that archway, painting the rocks with golden light. It won't be a doorway to Narnia, but it should still be a hell of a show. Early morning, about two hours before dawn. I try sending my weekly dispatch back home, but the Ansible can't get a connection. FTL comms are always touchy this close to the galactic core. The computer finds a courier station close enough for a solid link, so I drop them a burst packet for relay back to Earth. It should get there in a day or three, depending on how wide the interference band is. I rent a little sailboat and head out to the gate. It's going to be a gorgeous day on the water. I close my eyes and feel peace seep into my bones with every little sound. The gentle susurrus of the waves, the canvas flapping with the shifting winds, the creak of the wooden deck below me, the distant cries of things that act like seabirds but aren't exactly. I think of all the ancient heroes called and tempted by the sea, of Tennyson's Ulysses and Tolkien's Frodo, of Prince Caspian and Moana, explorers who left the safe and familiar for the promise of something strange and wondrous on the far side of the water. It's a tug I know all too well, having crossed the oceans of deep space to come here. This gray spirit, yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star, beyond the utmost bound of human thought. The open ocean beyond the dawn gate is a realm beyond safety, beyond the familiar. No wonder the Irrawaddians think of it as a door to another world. Beyond the gate, the sky is turning pink. Dawn will be here soon. I sail to within a hundred meters of the arch, then furl the sails, drop anchor, and settle in to wait. The ship's computer pings my handheld with a message. Odd. I wasn't expecting a reply this soon. I open the link and see a woman I do not know, dressed in the uniform of the Survey Corps. Her dark eyes are wide and troubled, and her voice trembles as she speaks. Dr. Lethem, this is Captain Francesca Wong. We received your transmission packet. I... I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to say this but we will not be able to deliver your message. Earth is... She stops, lowers her eyes, swallows hard. For the past few months, we've had reports of rising tensions between North America and the Eurasian Alliance. Three days ago, all Ansible traffic from both nations went offline. We still don't know what happened exactly, but Olympus Station picked up between thirty and fifty separate EM bursts from the direction of Earth. We think... We think there was a major nuclear exchange between America and Eurasia. Unseen claws wrap around my heart and squeeze. I can't seem to get enough air. 
Captain Wong says something else, but I can't quite make it out over the ringing in my ears. The handheld falls from limp fingers and clatters on the deck. I land beside it a moment later, my body curling around the grief, the pain, the mind-numbing horror of it. Gone. All gone. Every ship for six jumps around to evacuate the survivors, the captain says, the words echoing as though they come to me down a dark tunnel. If we can get to the southern hemisphere before too much of the fallout settles. Well, I don't know if you're a praying woman, doctor, but we'll need all the help we can get. A long pause. I can't promise when anyone will have time to send another update. Your supplies should be good for another standard year, at least, so sit tight and just try to be patient. Shit. I'm sorry, I know how that sounds, but I don't have any better answers right now. Wong out. The handheld chirrups as the transmission ends. I am left with only the wind and the waves, and the gentle creaking of my little boat, rocking on a sea twenty thousand light-years from home. Or what used to be home. I look up through my tears at the alien sky, growing brighter by the minute. What if I am fated to watch that sky forever? What if I am forgotten here, as Irrawaddy was forgotten? It isn't hard to imagine. One misplaced file, one insignificant oversight, as the galaxy grieves the deaths of billions. When they write the history of this terrible age, my discoveries here won't even merit a footnote. A wash of golden light floods across the mast and sails of the little boat, so sudden and shocking in its intensity that for a moment I fear that here, too, the nuclear fire has been unleashed. A moment later I realize that this is true, but only in the most technical sense. The dawn has arrived and filled the gate with the light of this world's sun. Despite my shock and grief, despite the enormity of the loss humanity has just suffered, I find myself rising shakily to my feet. Fate has spared me from the death of my world, and brought me here, now, to greet this alien dawn. It would be churlish of me to turn away. So I rise, and shading my face against the brilliant glow, I turn my eyes to the dawn gate. It is hard to explain what I see. To be sure, the dawn is there, the sun rising over the eastern sea, directly in line with the gate, just as I had predicted. I can see it, fuzzily, through a shimmering field of distortion that hangs within the gate itself. Within that arch of seeming stone, space itself seems to warp and twist into something that looks a little like a sphere of glass, a little like a glowing tunnel, a little like the inside of a kaleidoscope. Humans never evolved the senses to understand what I am seeing, because space-time isn't supposed to do that. And yet it has. And beyond the surface of that impossible thing, below the skin of the orb, or at the far side of the tunnel, I can see the other world. To be sure, I cannot see much. It's like gazing through a peephole. But I see wine-dark waters, and golden skies, and the raucous, abundant growth of things that might be trees or, or fungi or stranger things we have no words for. 
I hear the waves breaking against distant beaches, and far off in the distance, I see the glittering lights of what might be a settlement of some kind. Our loved ones are waiting on the other side, the Arawadians told me. If you are swift and brave, and do not linger when the dawn gate opens, you can go there. Before I have consciously made the decision, my hands are already hauling on the lines, opening the sails. There is no time to draw up the anchor, so I release the chain, letting it clatter over the edge and into the sea. I adjust the rudder and the trim of the sails, and my little boat glides forward, toward the impossible portal, and the even more impossible world beyond it. I blink back the tears, as the words of Tennyson come once more to my lips. Death closes all, but something ere the end, some work of noble note, may yet be done. The prow of my boat touches the edge of the distortion, and its smooth white lines seem to bend and refract in all directions, yet there is no sound of splintering wood, no shudder of distress in the deck beneath my feet. The shimmering field grows closer and closer. My vessel is swallowed by it as I watch, scattered across the kaleidoscope of warped and twisted space. In another moment, it will wash over me as well. I grip the wheel tightly in both hands, hold my head up high, and smile through the loss and grief and pain. Come, my friends. Tis not too late to seek a newer world. And those were our stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Umberto Eco said, Is it possible to say it was a beautiful morning at the end of November without feeling like Snoopy? Well, nevertheless, it is a beautiful morning at the end of November. Or at least it is when I'm recording this. So, much like the beagle of old, let's press onward and see what the muse has given me this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,161 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 694 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 37 days without breaking my chain. I made good progress this week on None Shall Dwell Within. I broke up the Jared scene into two chapters, because I realized I was dealing with two separate issues— the first is when Jared finds out about the senator's assassination, and that Malcolm is in custody for it. Here, the reader is introduced to Jared's current relations with the Psy Collective, and how the Metamore Hive is responding to Malcolm's alleged crime. The second half has Jared dealing with the consequences of his ordeal with the Brotherhood. As we saw at the end of The Lost and the Least, Jared still has some kind of connection to the Shackled God. And in this scene, the entity finds a new way to communicate with Jared. That's going to make Jared's life complicated in some interesting new ways. The Shackled God has been watching Jared, and it knows something about him that Jared doesn't. Cue the ominous music here. I've just finished writing Chapter 6, and the manuscript is a hair under 19,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this week. Please welcome Johnny and Daniel. 
behind-the-episode commentaries have now been released through episode 199, and new episodes will continue to drop every other day through December 14th. After that, I'll take a break from the commentaries until I can build up another backlog. Metamore City artist Carol Foote is nearly finished with the artwork for this year's holiday cards. She's been showing me the work in progress, and it's really lovely. I can't wait to get the cards printed and send them out to all my wonderful patrons. Anyone who is an active patron by December 1st is eligible to receive a card, but you need to make sure your mailing address is up to date in Patreon. Right now, there are 44 patrons who still haven't entered an address at all, and I'm sure some others have moved in the time since you put your address in there. So take a few minutes and make sure your info is up to date. Log into your Patreon account, go to your profile settings, and scroll down to Shipping Addresses. If you're not yet a patron of my campaign, now's a great time to join. In addition to the annual holiday card and the behind-the-episode commentaries, you get exclusive Metamore City artwork from talented artists like Ben Clifford and Carol Foote. Make a pledge at the $3 tier or higher, and you'll get access to sneak peeks, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. About 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, so it's the very best way to support me in my writing. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the donation tiers, and choose the one that's right for you. The link will also be in the show notes. Thanks again to everyone who helps me keep telling and sharing my stories. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.